Adrian Plass has written a book called The Unlocking, published by the Bible Reading Fellowship. They have given us permission to broadcast his recordings, and we hear one of them now. Victims of Sarcasm It was nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two bandits, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by derided him, shaking their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests, along with the scribes, were also mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross now so that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also taunted him. Shall I tell you something that really infuriates me? When my wife and I are in the car, I don't drive myself, we occasionally encounter a type of driver who will react to any small mistake that might be made with a slow, heavy, pityingly censorious shake of the head. It's just too wearisomely awful, the perpetrator of this ghastly sighing movement seems to be saying, that we mature, capable human beings have got to put up with lesser creatures like you, who certainly should not be allowed on the road and have probably made as much mess of every other department of your life as you have of being in charge of a car. I've always wanted to drag one of these head shakers out of his car, throw him onto the tarmac, kneel on his chest, and force him to tell me at least three areas in which he is totally incompetent, so that I can shake my head censoriously at him. You don't think I'm overreacting, do you? This may sound like trivia, but do you realise that the God who loved us enough to hang bleeding on that piece of wood we call the cross got exactly the same head-shaking treatment from those who passed by. He who with one divine, totally competent snap of the fingers could have summoned twelve legions of angels to give the whole world the tarmac treatment, consented to die so that those who mocked his failure could live. Pray with me. Dear Lord, we bring to you a great throng of people who have a basic fear of relationships because they've been seriously injured and handicapped by the scorn and sarcasm of others. Place your hand on those injuries now, Father. I know you don't often change people suddenly into something they are not, but perhaps the healing will begin for them here. Whisper softly to them the wonderful truth that Jesus knows how they feel because he had to put up with it as well. Dear Jesus, thank you. Amen.
hosts a religious podcast called Beyond Belief. Today we hear him discussing how young people of different faiths have adopted a more committed lifestyle than their parents. In a society that's becoming increasingly secular, a significant number of young people are embracing a full-fat faith. During the pandemic, a UK poll conducted by YouGov showed that those in Generation Z, that's those who are now under the age of about 25, are more likely to believe in God than their millennial peers. A new study of British Catholics has found that younger believers show a greater degree of religious commitment than their elders. While those who take the no-religion box are undoubtedly increasing, It appears that those who still identify with the faith are more likely to have a strengthened commitment to it. What's the pull for young people in 2022? And why follow a more traditional, rule-laden, perhaps even conservative path in a Western society which is generally becoming more liberal? Joining me to discuss the young and faithful are four people from different religious traditions, and I'd like you to introduce yourselves. And we'll start with you, Stephen. I'm Stephen Bullivant. I'm a professor of sociology and theology at St Mary's University in London. Jasveer. I am Jasveer Kaur Rababan. I recently received an MBE. I serve as the CEO of Raj Academy, where I am a seat music educator and emotional well-being expert. And Bavia. Hi there. I am Bavia Shah and I am serving as the national president for the National Hindi Students Forum UK, which caters for 4,000 Hindi students across the UK. And Sadiq. Hello, I'm Sadiq Hamid. I'm an academic and writer on Islam in Britain. I'd like all of you to tell me how you came to your personal faith positions. Now, Stephen, you're a Catholic convert. You weren't born a Catholic. No, I wasn't. So I wasn't sort of brought up as anything religiously. I wasn't baptised. Well, it was a long, gradual process from starting out at university as a pretty convinced atheist, falling into theology by accident, and then gradually went from thinking it was nonsense to thinking it was, you know, interesting but wrong, to beginning to think, oh, maybe there's something to this. And so then that became a a bachelor's, it became a master's, that ended up being a, a doctorate. And at the same time, I was drinking with Catholics, essentially. So there's this kind of socialization process. And it comes to a point six, seven years into this process where I realized that actually I can see myself becoming a Catholic. I met a priest at a party and he said, right, well, let's uh, baptize you next year in Rome. And that's what we did. And what happened to you, Jasper? Um, I am a British-born Sikh, you can say. And my parents, they immigrated from India in the 70s. So I had this hybrid connection with culture, the country I was living in, and with my faith. I don't come from a predominantly religious background. It was more so in my teen years, I took an active step to actually take Amrit, which means to commit to my faith. And I actually started to wear a turban, which is not very common as a woman. And that was 
me really stepping into that commitment and dedication as to what my practice of faith looks like for me, I then went to study a bachelor's in Sikh music and my master's is actually in Sikh music therapy. And Pavia, for me, I was born into a Hindu Jain family, in fact, so a different part of Hindu Dharma. So, you know, I was brought up with the Jain culture at home, uh, my parents, my grandparents as well. And when I started going to university, uh, I started realizing that, you know, despite being from a Jain background, I could relate to what other Hindus and other people from different parts of the world who call themselves Hindu and relate to them and relate to their practices, their values, their culture. And hence, whilst at university, got involved with the Hindu society and, and since then just been on this journey to explore what is the Hindu identity. Now, the three of you all deepened your faith in young adulthood. Do you meet many people like you? Do you think this is a common trend? Are younger people of faith more committed, Jasveer? I think that's an interesting question because how can we measure commitment? There's the obvious factors which we can see on somebody's exterior if there's particular articles of faith. And to that I can say yes, that I see more and more young Sikh people adopting the faith, wearing the turbans, wearing the 5Ks and trying to live that lifestyle. For me, my commitment of faith comes into the practice, which is the action. And a huge component of Sikh practices is seva, which is self service. And more and more young people within the community that I engage with in England are getting involved in those sorts of initiatives, which then create that domino effect for social good, because they feel like they're contributing to their society. And they may not be practicing in an orthodox manner, but they are still committed to the practice. So I think that the measure is, is interesting to see how do we define who is committed. Now, Sadiq, forgive me, but you and I do not belong to Generation Z. Um, but you've been studying young people in Islamic faith for a long time. How do you think that phenomenon of greater commitment expresses itself within Islam? So those people who want to practice their faith, they are doing it in a variety of ways, from the more traditional, if you like, ritualistic approaches that you'd expect in terms of praying five times a day or trying to pray five times a day, learning and trying to understand the Qur'an, observing the fast and so on. So that's taking place. But for other people, it is moving to much more of a kind of deeper engagement with what the faith actually demands in terms of spirituality, in terms of personal development, social development. And so people will be engaging in various sorts of activism for religious causes as well as social justice issues, demonstrating fighting against Islamophobia or whatever the particular cause may be. Stephen, the Catholicism that I was aware of when I was growing up, there were certain features of it. Um, people said the rosary fairly regularly, there was regular confession. Weekly mass was certainly on. Is that still the same today? Are young people coming back to those traditional things that were part of Catholicism two generations ago? Yes, the ones who are left are. And I think that's the important thing here, is that we've had kind of a good two generations of decline, if not three generations. What you mentioned there is this kind of distinctive Catholic subculture. Young people brought up now even if they're baptised and, you know, maybe go to Catholic schools, aren't being brought up in this kind of rich Catholic world of 
probably their grandparents would have been. But a significant proportion of people raised Catholic no longer even tick a religious box in the survey, so they identify as no religion. But of those who still do tick the box, they are keen to have a, f- a fuller experience of Catholicism. If you're going to Mass in your 20s, 30s, then you have to be there for a reason. You have to have been the, you know, the weird religious one in your, you know, probably in your Catholic school, but also in your family, in your, you know, wider peer groups. And, and so you have to own it. And therefore, we see this secondary effect of the other young people who they meet tend to be in the same boat too. And then you see this kind of mutually reinforcing normalisation, really. Jasper, I, I tell you what occurs to me listening to all this, that traditionally we said, yes, young people rebel against their parents. And actually that's what's happening here, because in a sense you rebelled against your parents by adopting the turban, by becoming part of the Khalsa. It's a sense it's the same pattern revealing itself, only it's a different type of rebellion. That is very true. Yes, I did. I did rebel. And it was an interesting rebellion because most people rebel towards other things. And I had to almost convince the people around me and in some cases fight for the right to practice my faith the way that felt natural to me. Most commonly because women in the community used to wear turbans um, and it was a sign of being a warrior when they went out to battle it was men and women alongside each other on horseback and as time has evolved a lot of the practices changed as well for the Sikh faith so now most commonly in England and in the west you wouldn't see women wear turbans so much but I have noticed in recent years that more and more women are reaching towards that and yes I think there is a layer of rebellion in that as we fight for many things the right to practice our faith the right for gender equality as well because Jasper um, your, yours was quite a rebellion because as I understand it in your teenage years you cut your hair which Sikhs are not supposed to do I, I think you also began to drink that is correct I smile and laugh at the moment because as a child, those things were really frightful. If my parents had found out, the consequences would have been dire because my parents were quite traditional in how they lived in Western society. So, yes, I went to the other side of things to almost validate to myself what was important to me and what was not. And it was through having those experiences that it re-emphasised the importance of my own spiritual and religious practice and beliefs. And that was why at the age of 18, I was very sure about the decision of looking different and knowing that I would be treated differently. It was a very difficult decision at that time. And I'm sure that that's something that young people who are exploring faith are also encountering when you're trying to adopt practices which don't fit the status quo, whether that's practicing being celibate, whether it's staying away from alcohol, whether it's keeping your hair uncut. These are not things that fit our social norms. So, I think for anybody to step into what they want, you have to fight for it. You have to be a bit of a rebel. Bavia, Hinduism is, in a sense, different. It's very diverse. You've already hinted at that. There are lots of strands of Hinduism. And I wonder, is part of what you represent in universities, it's that coming together that Stephen has already talked about. It's a sense of community, a peer group, as a minority within a larger majority society that's important. 
Yeah, definitely. And I think that importance of realizing that we have different ways of showing our faith and adopting these values, but really that coming together is important. But coming together for what purpose, I think, is important. And I think just really actually highlighted one of the key principles of Seva, you know, selfless service. These values are universal values. They're going to make British society better. And so really that's what we try to achieve when we bring across different Hindus. How can we see these universal values in action and look back into our history and our culture, learn from that and apply it to modern day? But is it also about a spiritual search? Most definitely. I think that's very key in, in our traditions and our cultures, understanding who am I? And having that connection, whether you believe in a higher supreme being or not, but having that connection with yourself and realizing that, especially in our culture in Hindu Dharma, that we believe everyone is divine. There is divinity within me. So to unlock that divinity within me, I need to search inside. And that's where that spiritual practice comes from. Kenneth Stephen has written a series of essays about islands in the Hebrides. Today he talks about Barra. You can hear the full programme on BBC Sounds. Besides this isle of Vattersee towards the north, between mile of sea lies an isle called Barre, seven mile lang from the southwest to the northeast, four miles braid from the southeast to the northwest, and fertile and fruitful isle for corn, and abundant of fishing of keeling, ling, and other white fishes with an parish kirk called Kilbarry. So wrote Donald Munro, who travelled through many of the Western Isles in 1549 of his encounter with Barra. I've long thought of Barra as a piece of Ireland that floated off the map. It lies close to the end of the spine of islands that make up the Outer Hebrides. Imagine them creating a kind of kite shape on the map. The larger islands that compose the kite's head are all at the top. Then there is the tail that drags south, made up of smaller and smaller island fragments. That's where Barra lies, close to the tail's end, yet a good deal bigger nonetheless than the last broken fragments that finish the bottom of that tail. It takes five hours to reach Barra from the west coast port of Oban, and often enough, those can be fairly dreadful hours in rough seas. Once you've got there, you can't help feeling that here is a different country, a different culture, a different language, a different way of living. Settlers were here early enough to create hill forts and to leave ample evidence of their prehistoric tools and crafts. But it's the Celtic Christian story of Barra I find most alluring. The story that really sets the island alight for however many hundred years. No one can be certain quite who Bar was, the early Christian who was later made a saint and who gave his name to the island. What seems likely is that he was a Scot, and originally from the top right-hand corner of the country from Sutherland. This is the lovely bit of hagiography that's been swirled around the early life of Barr. His father was of noble birth and his mother not. What mattered was that the child had been conceived out of wedlock. 
The local chieftain was enraged and ordered that both parents be burned at the stake. But before the fire was kindled, the unborn child spoke from the mother's womb, warning of the awfulness of the deed that was about to be done. The child Bar was duly born and became a monk. It may be that he was one of Columba's own disciples. Somehow or other he came to Barra. Whatever happened in his real childhood and growing up, I can't help wondering if Bar wasn't one of the Papar monks. They found a kind of martyrdom by forsaking everything else and going out to remote island landfalls to better hear the voice of God. There are Papar sites dotted all over the inner and outer Hebrides. They were simple enough, stories in bare stone. There'd be the remains of a tiny chapel and a cell and a cross-marked slab. The hermits seemed to have needed almost nothing to survive. The only thing that was a necessity was fresh water, and always that's close to a papar site. Just a mile from where Bar chose to build his monastic cell was Tobervara, Bar's well. As so often... Would that we could travel down the years to know the story in its fullness. All we can do is to take the fragments and piece them into what we sense is the best order. What's clear is that Bar, whoever precisely he was, and whatever for sure he did, was revered in the centuries that followed. The place where he first settled, at what today is Yoligari, is made up of several chapels, the main one almost certainly built on the remains of one going back to the 600s. So it may well be that this place was important in its day as a monastery. I think it's of real significance to hear the words of a native of Barra concerning the honouring of St. Bar on the island. And these words are from the great storyteller, the Kodi, whose life spanned the second half of the 19th century and the first half of the twentieth. Barraman used to celebrate a day in honour of St. Bar, and it was mostly spent in shinty matching, horse racing, jumping and so on. And none turned a sod of Barra soil the day they were holding a feast in honour of St. Bar. Up to maybe a hundred years ago, this custom was carried on. Even today, people who are friends buried at Kilbar keep up that part of the custom that they do not do any tilling of the ground on that day.
Oh. 